Anyway, so far we've really been talking about encoding in a way that might generally support retrieval anytime in the future. If we return to our recipe card example, the one that I presented earlier, the idea is that if we simply put information into memory well, then whenever we want it, it should be easier to find. Uh, but now I want to talk about a sort of special case. Sometimes we want to do something more specific at the time of encoding. For example, maybe we're at work and we're talking to a colleague about some book we read and we're kind of gushing about the book and how great it is. The friend sounds interested, and so we offer to lend the book. We feel like, hey, this is a nice thing for me to do, and we confidently say things like, I will bring that book in for you tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes, and we forgot. And maybe we even forget the next day, and the next. And to both our friend's annoyance and to our own annoyance, we keep forgetting to bring in this book. Why is it so hard to remember to do something in the future? Well, this specific problem is sometimes characterized as the prospective memory problem. Trying to encode some instruction to ourselves to remember to do something in the future. It's almost like setting some device to tape a program we want to watch. Just set the timer and all's fine. Well, that seems to work well for mechanical devices, but it doesn't work well for humans. We seem to have a lot of trouble with this kind of encoding for future retrieval. One really salient example of our difficulties with prospective memory is how we sometimes initiate an email uh, and the whole reason for initiating that email is to send somebody an attachment. But we decide we also want to write them a little note and so we do so. And then we send the email without the attachment. We all do this commonly. And of course one of the things to learn from that is attach first, write the note second but it's a good example of our problem with prospective memory. Even though working memory is on task, and even though the time between initiating the email and ultimately sending it might be quite short, still we sometimes forget that primary purpose, the reason we sent the email. Now, if prospective memory can fail at that kind of short interval, it shouldn't be surprising to any of us that it can be even worse when the event that we want to remember is hours or days away. Like, for example, remembering to bring that book in for your friend. Well, the classic remedy for this problem is, of course, to tie a string around your finger. But now, this is one of those remedies that you hear about, but almost never see anybody using. Why? Well, because for one thing, the retrieval queue is with you all day, and maybe all night in the case of lending the book. Uh, and, and so you do this the whole time just so that you have that queue with you when you need it. That's annoying as all heck. Plus, we might even become so used to having that string on our finger that it doesn't even help us anyway. It doesn't cue us when we need it. So is there any way that we can do something else? Is there any way we can use working memory to encode this sort of intent for future retrieval? Well, what we'd really like to do is think of some cue that will suddenly appear in the world at the time when we want to remember. And we want to associate that cue um, with what it is that we're trying to remember. So, let's do the novel one. Let's say I want to remember to bring that novel in tomorrow. I need to think about this as I'm leaving the house. So maybe I do the following. Maybe I imagine the door to my house, but I imagine that door as though it was the cover of the novel. And so I may actually literally imagine reaching for the doorknob of this giant novel. 
And maybe I want to even go a little further. Maybe I want to imagine opening the novel, opening the door, walking through, closing it, and as I lock up behind me, I imagine putting my key right into the novel. Okay? If I do all that well, if I deeply encode that image, then maybe, just maybe, that image will come to mind as I leave my house tomorrow morning. And if it does, then I will succeed. Okay, so let's take stock of where we are so far. Encoding is the gateway where the you of the present is communicating with the you of the future. And in so doing, building all the potential connections between your past and your future. One of the major functions of working memory is to perform this encoding in a way that will make life easier for the future you, but storing the information in a way that makes it relatively easy to find later whenever we might want to access it. However, because working memory is such a flexible and powerful memory system, if one takes the time to use it right, it can even be used to encode information in ways that not only make that information available later, but that literally could cue us to remember that information at a specific time, solving the prospective memory problem. Now, most of the time, we don't expend the effort to use it in this way. We leave some of the abilities of working memory just frankly untapped, and instead, we just put up with the annoyance of consistently forgetting. But to the determined user, working memory has the potential to reduce these annoyances. Well, if working memory is the gateway to long-term memory, I now suggest we walk through that gateway and enter into a discussion of long-term memory itself. So I'll meet you on the other side, at the next lecture, that is. Lecture 7, Episodic and Semantic Long-Term Memory. I was one of those kids who just kept changing what I wanted to be when I grew up. Just after getting my driver's license, I was thinking, wow, you know, being a taxi driver wouldn't be so bad. You just get to drive your car around all day, and when you have no fares, you can crank up your music as loud as you want. It's a dream for a 16-year-old, right? Well, once I read more about the challenges of being a taxi driver, the image kind of changed a little bit. Now, of course, the goal of any good taxi driver is to get as many fares as possible and then to efficiently ferry them around the city without getting lost. So, in order to do this, first you have to be in the right places at the right times, the places where people who want a cab tend to be. It also requires great knowledge of the city um, and, you know, sort of how things work in the city. What's the best route to go down and which way should you be driving when you're going down that route to most efficiently get from point A to point B. They also learn the rhythm of the city pretty well. So they know, for example, to be around office places at the end of a day. Or maybe to visit restaurant districts around the time when people are done eating and to be around clubs and bars at the time when they let out. Taxi drivers also pay a lot of attention to specific events that might be going on in the city. So perhaps there's a concert or a home show or some other one-day event that's expected to attract many people. If they remember this event is going on, they may decide to also visit its location, especially if the event ends at some specific time. Remember when I first introduced the psychological definition of memory? 
I said that anytime past experiences affect your current behavior, then memory is at work. Well, already you've learned that there are many ways in which the past can linger in our minds, including very short duration sensory memories and the more effortful working memory system that we use for all sorts of purposes. In this lecture, we're going to turn our attention to long-term memory systems, the systems that allow experiences to affect our behavior over much longer temporal windows. In my little story about the life of taxi drivers, I included examples of three different kinds of long-term memory. I had introduced these previously, but we're going to discuss them more in this and in subsequent lectures. So for example, I mentioned that taxi drivers have to know the roads of their city. So to take perhaps a really extreme example, aspiring taxi drivers in London are advised to study for two to four years, learning hundreds of detailed routes, including virtually all of the landmarks and points of interest. And they have to do this and then write a qualifying exam. It's an exam that's simply known as the knowledge. Taxi drivers also just come to know certain parts of the city and they tend to know good places to pick up fares at certain times. So all of this kind of knowledge, their knowledge of the city and the knowledge of where to be, is represented in their semantic memory. Their general knowledge of the world learned across a range of experiences. I also mentioned that the taxi drivers will take into account specific one-time events. Now, presumably, they would have heard of these events via a radio advertisement or maybe something they read in a newspaper. And if they remember learning about that event at the right time, that is, when that event is about to let out, then they will go to that appropriate location. Now, this form of memory is an episodic memory. It's related to some specific episode of their lives, the episode of hearing about that event and hearing, for example, the date and when it might let out. Of course, all the while, they also have to drive, and that requires remembering the muscle movements related to driving, and that's procedural memory. So all three of those types of memory reflect the influence of events that occurred some time ago, perhaps hours, days, months, or years, and all three are considered different types of long-term memory. Now, before we get to that, let's begin with two analogies that, I th that will really help us to think about the relation between long-term memory and working memory. The analogies won't be perfect, they seldom are, but some of these imperfections will actually allow me to highlight some important aspects of long-term memory, so even the imperfections will be useful. Alright, the first analogy is a library analogy. Let's say you have some sort of project, uh, and you need to do some research to accomplish this project. So you go to the library and you find a table where you're going to work. You then begin to go to the stacks and search the stacks, find books related to your project, and bring them back to your table. Once you bring them back, you search through the books, find the stuff that's relevant, and probably combine information from various books to ultimately produce your project. Okay. In this example, the desk that you're working at is essentially your working memory. It represents your working memory. The stacks with all the library books represent your long-term memory. So, the working memory is a sort of dynamic place where a lot of things are coming together. Information from long-term memory is brought there, it's accessed, it's analyzed, and it's combined with other information uh, to create some sort of new product. 
If that new product is something that we might want later, then perhaps we work on it enough such that it itself becomes a new book, and we essentially take that book and place it in our long-term memory. It's almost like we added a new book to the library. So, as that analogy suggests, working memory sometimes uses information from long-term memory, but it can also put new information back into long-term memory. Very interactive. Now, for those of you who prefer computers to libraries, computers also provide an interesting analogy. So let's say that you want to write a letter using some program like uh, Microsoft Word, for example. That program had been previously installed on your hard drive. And really, your hard drive is essentially like another long-term memory system. Once something is copied to it, it just stays there, and essentially it does nothing until the program is activated, which we typically do by double-clicking on some icon. Once we do that, the program is loaded into what's called RAM, random access memory. Now, RAM is like working memory. It's the place where items from long-term memory, like programs or previous versions of files that were on the hard drive, they're loaded into RAM so that the user can work with them. Perhaps the user creates new content, maybe they update old content, or maybe they're combining content with new ideas to produce something completely new. Now, like our working memory, only so much information can be active in RAM at any given time. And once again, if we create something that we might want later, we can then save it to the hard drive, which is akin to placing the newly created information into long-term memory. Okay, both of these analogies are good in the sense that they highlight the following points. Working memory and long-term memory are very interactive in the sense that information from long-term memory may be copied into working memory, um, usually with the goal of solving some current problem that we have or some task, but the solution of that may then be copied back into long-term memory as a new bit of information that might affect future performance. At the same time, these two forms of memory are distinct. Long-term memory is more about static storage, although as I say that, you'll see later in the course that that's really kind of too, too strong of a claim, really. But for now, let's think of it that way. Long-term memory, static storage. We put something there and it stays there until we need it. Working memory, in contrast, is much more about accomplishing something, something we need to get done. I mentioned earlier that working memory is related to the notion of consciousness. More strongly, one could argue that our conscious experience is really the experience of what is happening in working memory. And this will be especially important as we discuss the first kind of long-term memory I want to focus on, episodic memory. Now, of course, I introduced you to episodic memory in the first lecture, but let me reintroduce you by asking another question similar to the one I asked you then, but a little different. Here's the question. When was the last time that you went shopping? Okay, if you were able to remember, I expect, again, that you remembered much more than just the answer to that question. Instead, what likely happened is that you searched your memory to remember one or more shopping trips. And as you remembered each, they were replayed in your mind, kind of like short movies. Again, movies in which you are typically the star, but the movies also probably included all sorts of other details, like maybe the people who were there with you, or 
some details of the place in which you were shopping and the people you interacted with there. Perhaps even images of what you purchased or other random events that occurred. So the answer to the question came with all, other, with all sorts of other contextual information. Part of that information probably included when you went shopping. And if multiple shopping episodes came to mind, you had to sort through that a little bit. You had to figure out, well, which of these experiences is the most recent? And in order to do this, you also had to explicitly remember something about the event and when it occurred specifically. Okay, so the critical point here is that the subjective or conscious experience of episodic memory is really critical. In fact, it's called episodic memory precisely because it involves a replaying of some episode from your life. As I mentioned before, it's sometimes called autobiographical memory because it is about your life. Much as an autobiography is the story of your life, autobiographical memories are episodes from your life, chapters in that story. Now there's a slight caveat to all this, and, and that caveat is as follows. One can also mentally replay episodes from your life in which you really are not the star. So perhaps you were at a fascinating play or, or a great concert once, and you can kind of replay events from that play or concert. Now you're still in that memory, but you're playing more the role of a spectator in that memory and not the role of a star. So in a sense, it's still an autobiographical memory. It's a memory of your life, but it's one in which you're not really the star. In fact, that taxi driver example I gave you, the, the one about the taxi driver hearing about some event, maybe from a newspaper or a radio ad, in that case, the, the taxi driver isn't really the star. They're more of a spectator. It's still considered episodic because it's still an episode from the person's life. Um, if the taxi driver starts to kind of combine these sources of information to form a new piece of general information, like when and where to look for, for fares, that will become part of his semantic knowledge. So episodes where we are not the star may be the most natural contributors to semantic memory. So the conscious experience is what makes an episodic memory an episodic memory. And working memory is the place where conscious experiences happen. The best way to understand this, to understand this relationship, is by way of a concept that I like to call the reality simulator. And it's a concept very similar to notions of virtual reality, and especially similar to the holodeck notion that was often described in the Star Trek series in which Patrick Stewart starred as the captain. The idea behind the holodeck was as follows. The characters on the show were all on a spaceship in deep space for long periods of time. And as you can imagine, this could give rise to inevitable cabin fever of the worst sort. So the holodeck was a room that could be used to create settings in a virtual reality sort of way. And these settings would be complete with the context and characters acting in appropriate ways. So for example, if somebody felt the need to escape to a 1950s era jazz bar, the holodeck could be used to create a virtual jazz bar within which that person could interact with other patrons, maybe watch live music if they wanted, perhaps even play live music, maybe even along with these other artificially generated characters. So it was a virtual reality that could be used to provide a getaway. All right, well, to some extent, working memory is our own personal mental holodeck. 
it allows us to create virtual worlds within our minds. So for example, when we read a novel, we literally see the people and places as we read about them. We envision the interactions that are described. In fact, many of us are disappointed when we see the movie, if there's a movie version of this novel. When we go and see that, somehow it just doesn't seem as personal or as relevant. The people and places that we created in our minds were somehow superior to those presented in the movie. Now, we use this reality simulator for all sorts of things other than memory. So for example, imagine the following. You are a mother. It's midnight. Your daughter's not home, and your daughter has an 11 p.m. curfew. What do you think is happening in your mind? Well, chances are you're creating all sorts of terrible movies in your mind. Movies that portray all the horrible things that could be happening to your daughter right now. The various things that she might be experiencing. This kind of mental experience is what we call worry. Now note that in this situation, you yourself are not represented in the simulation at all. This is a simulation about your daughter. It's not something that you did or that you experienced. Interestingly, it also has nothing to do with memory per se, although clearly your knowledge of your daughter and her friends and the things they like to do could sort of form that simulation that you create. But the simulation itself is a simulation about your daughter and it's about things that might be happening now. It's not a simulation related to memory and definitely not to memory of your life. Now I could tell you similar stories related to daydreaming or fantasies or maybe even planning some event like a future trip. All of these internal events involve you simulating some sort of event within your mind and watching that event unfold. And working memory is a system within which such events are experienced. So really, working memory is about a whole lot more than memory, which is why I described it as such a central cognitive process. Okay, from this perspective then, episodic memory is simply another of the sorts of simulations that working memory can provide. We set our reality simulators, our internal holodecks if you will, to simulate some context we experienced in the past. Yes, these contexts tend to be autobiographical, with you playing the role of either the star or occasionally the observer. We then replay the events that we recall occurring within that context and in so doing, we re-experience the event as a conscious memory. Thus, working memory is the system that gives episodic memory a conscious quality and that's why we're still talking about working memory in this lecture about long-term memory. Now let's contrast all this with semantic memory. Just to reintroduce you to semantic memory, let me ask you some questions that are of the sort that you would use your semantic memory to answer. Okay, so here goes. This is like the, the quick round in a, in a trivia game show on TV. What comes after March? What is 8 times 3? What is the capital city of Germany? Is Ontario east or west of British Columbia? Do more or less than 10% of Canadians still live in igloos? What is the name of the American national anthem? Okay, how did you do? Well, notice that these questions were generally much less personal. 
I didn't ask you about some event in your life, but rather I asked you about some information that you either do or do not know. Again, these are the sort of questions that might be asked on trivia game shows, and generally when we see people do well on such shows, we'll maybe describe them as book smart or intelligent. They have acquired a whole lot of information about the world. When we attempt to retrieve information about the world, information we clearly learned on some earlier occasion, the subjective experience tends to be very different. Usually we feel like the information just arrives in our working memory without much else. What month comes after March? Well, April. We remember it. That's it. It just comes to mind. Perhaps we have a, a mnemonic that comes to mind. For example, which months have 30 days? Well, 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. Uh, that perhaps might come to mind, but there's no movie in our mind. It's just the answer, retrieved from memory. So really, the primary distinction between semantic memory and episodic memory is the lack of an episode, an autobiographical episode to be exact, in the case of semantic memory. A secondary distinction is that items in semantic memory are the most likely to benefit from fun and simple mnemonic tricks. Maybe you learn the number of humps on a Bactrian camel versus a dromedary by just thinking of a capital B versus a capital D with both letters lying face up. Clearly episodic and semantic memory are related. Virtually everything that is in our semantic memory got there through episodes of our lives in which we had contact with the world knowledge. In fact, together, episodic and semantic memory are often called declarative memory, because whether we're, we retrieve an episode or a semantic memory, in both cases the retrieval feels intentional and the result is a product that can then be declared. Thus, the two kinds of memory have much in common. They differ in terms of subjective experience. Episodic memories come tied to a bunch of contextual details that make us feel like we're reliving the experience, whereas semantic memories do not. So perhaps the question becomes the following. When I ask you a question like 8 times 3, for example, why don't you have an episodic replaying of the event when you first learned that? I mean, such an event occurred. At some point in time, there was a teacher who initially taught you that problem. We know that occurred, so I ask you to think back a little bit. Try to bring it to mind. Can you do it? No, right? It's really hard. Why, why are you having so much trouble retrieving that particular episode? Of course, there were also other episodes. Other teachers probably taught you that problem as well, perhaps in different contexts. There are all sorts of math problems you likely encountered over your learning that required you to multiply 8 by 3. You may have also encountered that problem in the context of homework that you were doing with your parents' help, or maybe you even came into contact with the problem outside of the educational sense in general. Maybe you wanted to buy three t-shirts at one point and they cost $8 each, and you had to know if you had enough money, and that required the same multiplication problem. Why is it that you can't remember any of these episodes when I ask you that question? Why do none of them come to mind? Well, in a sense I've answered that question by asking it the way I did. The claim is this. In order for some experience to become an episodic memory, 
it needs to be somewhat unique, and it needs to be tied to some relatively rich and singular experience. If we experience some piece of information over and over, and we do so across a range of different contexts, then it becomes generalized knowledge. Knowledge that is linked in so many varying contexts that it loses a strong association to any specific one of them. That is what semantic memory is, and that is why it doesn't bring to mind specific contextual information when you try to retrieve it. It is linked to so many different contexts that no one of them is especially linked to it. So when I ask you what you had for dinner last night, I am asking you about a unique event linked to the food you remember, and many of the details of the event are likely to come to mind. But if I ask you if you like potatoes, that's a very different question. No unique event is implied. You have eaten potatoes in many different episodes of your life, and chances are none of them will particularly come to mind. Now, lest I send sound too black and white about this, there are some cases where a given memory experience includes aspects of both semantic and episodic memory. You may still remember the moment when a teacher or someone else first helped you remember some semantic information. For example, a guy I know told me the following story. Whenever he wants to remember some of the geological periods that he learned in school, and of course we all want to remember our geological periods now and then, right? Well, anyway, whenever he has such a desire, he remembers a female classmate from a long-ago class saying something that started with, Please cover our salad dish with carrots, which obviously corresponds to the Precambrian, the Cambrian, the Ordovician, the Silurian, Devonian, and Carboniferous periods, respectively. So he is able to access this.